Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as I got to attend the Community Housing Aotearoa conference last week. It was a really amazing event with about 450 people all focusing on the issue of housing and how we can get more houses built for people who need them. Now, this is a workshop session which looked at finance structures for private investment into housing, and I recorded it because my colleague Judith Bullen was one of the speakers talking about legal arrangements. But I thought the whole session was really good if you wanted to dive into the housing issues that we face today and how we might provide solutions. So there's a panel which includes Stephen Hart from Court, James Palmer, the CEO of Community Finance and Positive Capital, Natalia Garsteka from MHUD, Adelaide Brown from KPMG, and like I said, my colleague Judith Bullen, who's a partner at Perryfield Lawyers. And one thing to mention is that Judith talks about a legal guide for community housing, so I'm putting a link to that in the description that goes with this episode. If you click that, you'll be able to download a copy and have a look. As many of you know, apart from being the voice of Seeds Podcast, I'm also a partner at Perryfield Lawyers, and we do a lot of work with community housing. In fact, in the last year, we've helped probably a dozen different community housing projects, some from really small scale right through to really massive. As well as that, I am the chair of Community Finance, which has raised about $120 million for social housing, and James Palmer talks about that in his talk. I really hope you enjoy this session, and a shout out to the organizers, Paul, Chris, and the entire Community Housing Aotearoa team. Yeah, it was a really cool event, and good to see a lot of different people coming together and thinking about what the future might be. Now let's get into this workshop session. He pumato a ho e Cork Community Housing for Stephen Hart Takaunga. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, leading into afternoon tea and talking about finance is potentially a daunting proposition. So I'm grateful that you're all here, but I think what you're going to find is that it'll be a really engaging uh, workshop this afternoon. And the reason for that is I think we've put together all of the puzzle pieces in terms of exploring what finance might look like and how that is matched up, and in this case particularly with IRRS funding for public housing. And the widow, I think, of, um, uh, from the first morning was, let's be clear about what we're talking about. We talk about funding and housing tenures, uh, and in this case we're definitely talking about IRRS funding, and in the current context, um, 100% really that's talking about the operating supplement. Uh, of course, the official um, theme of this conference is unlocking local, and I, but I'm quite keen to sort of adopt for myself at the, re, at the very least the unofficial theme, which I think might just be now getting shit done, which I think is fantastic. Thank you, Kate, for that one. I really appreciate it. And my sort of um, thoughts on that, and maybe the challenge that I put out to our sector, which I probably suspect is 90% made of people who are attracted to supporting other people is that we have to uh, embrace these other tools that allow us to get that shit done. And one of those is finance. And I think if you're interested in building houses, you've got to come to grips with development. And if you're interested in building houses, you've got to come to grips with how you fund, but how you also finance those houses. And there's a clear distinction to be made. A lot of us talk uh, in terms of how we advocate government for the funding side. And I think we all have a strong opinion at different times about what that funding could and should be. Finance, however, will always be a part of that. Government will never pay 100%. Uh, and so there's always some other capital, some other money that's required to make it happen. Uh, so this, today we're, we're uh, I think, very fortunate to have a wonderful group of speakers who are all going to uh, provide a slightly different perspective. We've got um, HUD, uh, Principal Commercial Advisor, Natalia Gashtekska. And we had a conversation yesterday about how I, how I would um, try very hard to, to pronounce your surname correctly. I hope I did okay. Um, so providing the HUD perspective in terms of public housing, the delivery, and also some of the, what they're looking for in terms of value. Uh, we've also got James Palmer, who I'm sure many of you know is the Chief Executive of uh, Community Finance and Positive Capital, who will provide, again, some context, but also I think the unique uh, approach and position that community finance hold, which is um, somewhere between our sector and, uh, I don't know if you call it the murky, but sometimes impenetrable world of private finance. Um, I'm going to have, hopefully, not too much of an existential crisis introducing myself, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a joint venture that 
Court Community Housing has formed uh, to attract some finance. Uh, we've also fortunate to have Judith, uh, Judith Bullen, who's a partner at Perry uh, Field um, Lawyers, sorry Judith, um, who's really going to um, hone in on what uh, CHIP or um, uh, housing provider might be asking, what's the sort of due diligence process that might be required, <clears throat> and potentially some of the structures that are involved in terms of holding that finance together. And then we have Adelaide Brown, who's uh, working for KPMG, a manager in the deals advisory division, who I think will draw a closer distinction in terms of what is the difference between funding and finance, and maybe something that's really interesting to you, how a deal might come together, what's the process to be thinking. My job also as a timekeeper is to try and keep us on track so that there's plenty of time for questions at the end. And so I think the less I talk now, the better. And so I'd like to introduce Natalia from HUT. Engamana, Engareo, Engaiwi, e Tone, Tenakoto Katoa, Ko Natalia Garstetska Aho, He Kaimahi Aho i Te Tuakupakuwakanga. Kia everyone. Um, when my boss asked me if I wanted to speak at the chat conference and be part of this particular workshop, I said, oh yes. And then I thought, oh dear, this is going to be nerve wracking. I've never spoken at a conference before, and it is a little bit stressful, but also exhilarating to be here. So I wanted to start off saying a thank you to um, Community Housing Aotearoa for inviting the ministry to be part of this important conversation. And when I was thinking about, you know, um, offering a view from the funders' perspective and what I would say and uh, where, you know, what would be a good sort of starting point, I thought we have a lot of data. Uh, we have a lot of data through all the applications that come through from community housing providers to, um, to deliver new build public homes. So I thought um, setting the scene and placing those, um, I think we're talking about some more innovative financing structures, enigmatic creatures that are emerging on the fringes of the sort of more mainstream financing uh, solutions for, um, for the sector. Um, so for setting the seniors and putting it in a little bit of a complex would be good, sorry, context. Um, so a um, short journey through history. Funding for community housing providers to deliver new built public homes um, was first available in around 2000, I think the open RFP came out in mid-2015. It was relatively brief, but it offered um, operating supplement um, in addition to income-related rent subsidy or up to 50% of the development um, cost contribution. It was later replaced by public housing plan, two, two in fact two subsequent public housing plans and the main funding model for, for the sector um, has become to be um, the operating supplement. So um, as you all probably know very well, you need to go and find capital to build um, homes for people in need um, in the first place. And I think it would be unfair of me not to acknowledge the very difficult operating um, environment in which, um, which uh, the sector currently faces, uh, not just the community sector, but the private sector as well. We've seen um, construction costs skyrocketing in the last few years and in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, interest costs, um, sorry, interest rates, the cost of debt also going up along with the general inflation. So it is really hard, it is challenging to access finance and, and, and especially through the sort of more traditional um, sources, the bank lending. And I think this, together with the, with, the, with the funding settings that we have available for the sector, um, you know, have fertilised the ground for the new structures to emerge. And then I thought, let's look at some numbers and where those structures are in the sort of grand scale of things. So very quickly, uh, to date, over those last sort of six to seven years, we've approved 3,100 public homes um, for delivery by community housing providers, and we're talking just about new builds. About two-thirds of those homes have been delivered and tenanted by now, which is fantastic. Um, and just acknowledging that, that the sector has actually delivered more public homes than that, but we're talking just about new builds. 50% of those are owned by chips, and I think this is really important for this conversation here. Um, 
46% for residential leases, and I think those were predominantly procured under the previous public housing plan. And just about 4%, so some of the transactions we've recently seen that are financed through those more innovative models. The total build cost um, is estimated at 1.4 billion, and where has that capital come from? About a quarter from the government and the sector itself. 190 million for chip equity, that comes mainly through um, Island that, um, that, that chips own. Um, but also um, assets that you know can be leveraged to get a bit more borrowing or, or cash. Um, the big figure that really stands out is that 700 million bank debt. And just to caveat that number, about 40% actually belongs or is on the balance sheets of community housing providers, as estimated by us on the basis of information we receive from you guys when we get the applications for funding. Again, just on the sort of in the right bottom corner, 130 million, that's the sort of capital that is associated with those more innovative financing structures, the 4% of housing that I mentioned on the previous slide, and that comes from you know, institutional investors, it's mobilized for sort of impact investment, sources different than bank lending. And that kind of leads me to what that structure is. And I don't want to say too much because I feel I'm going to be stealing content from my fellow speakers. But in a nutshell, um, these structures are commercially put together through, I call them joint ownership. It's when the chip comes together with the private sector partner, they own the asset together, and the capital is mobilized from various sources. I'm going to leave it at that. What is important, what are the sort of observations from the funders' perspective on the transactions that we have seen to date? And like I mentioned, only 4% of the places we've approved for funding so far come for those structures. The good thing about them is that they take your equity further. So, in other words, for every $1 of chip equity, more housing outcomes can be delivered. And this is great news. But nothing is free, ever and it is likely to come at a higher cost to HUD, um, which is understandable, a private sector requires a rate of return. The good thing, and what we've also seen on the transaction to date, is that the CHIP has the option. So it, it comes with a partial ownership from day one, which is really important for, I think, the sector, but also the government and under current <coughs> policy, um, that CHIP ownership is prioritised. Um, so the chip has the option as well to buy out its partner at the end of the contract term, which typically is about 25 years. But what has come apparent is that um, that outcome is sort of dependent on what happens in the market. So I think what's important for us to see going forward is that those models are stress tested for changes in the market, and it's something um, worth considering. They are more complex, the structures, so they do require a level of capability, um, whether it's already in-house or potentially needs to be outsourced, again, something to be considered. And it can take time, at least in initially, for any given sort of product or solution to agree terms and negotiate, it can be a lengthy process. So again, something to be mindful of. What we're looking for, ultimately, is value for money. What HUD wants to see is um, good, fit-for-purpose, warm, safe homes for people that are in need, and especially in regional locations at this stage. So, um, this is what I'm... Um, and actually, I'll leave it at this because I think there may be some other questions following on that. That's my presentation. Thank you very much. Kia it's a privilege to be here. Um, well done to Char for hosting such an amazing conference so far. It's, as I expected, inspirational and sobering and challenging. The people in this room are at the forefront of making a difference to those that are outside of our mainstream housing system. But those same people are also outside the mainstream finance sector. They're on the periphery. And so for us to work together to couple what the government does with funding to bring in finance, what does that mean? It means more houses for those people we want to help. 
So I don't think most of us grow up during sort of primary school or high school and think, yeah, I want, a, I want a career in finance. And I can assure you that was not what I planned. But I had the privilege and burden of getting to meet a lot of the wonderful people in this room and wanted to be part of helping you do more. So, that's where community finance and positive capital come in. We're social enterprises who are committed to finding finance and capital to help you do more. Because I think we've all seen with our own eyes and heard these last couple of days, there is a real scale and mountain to climb for the increasing number of people who just don't live in the homes that they should. In a nutshell, what we believe is part of the solution is building a bridge between what have been separate worlds. On the one hand are the proven solutions, and that is you, the community housing sector, it is the charities and iwi groups that are leading the charge in providing not just bricks and mortar, but the safe place to live and thrive. The bridge is about how do we then find the money to help you do more, and that is the challenge that our country faces. Because houses are incredibly expensive. That's why we have this problem. So I like to start with just a reminder of why I get up in the morning and why you do too. It is sobering how much finance, capital and funding we need given how many people are displaced. We're lucky to have Shamabil Yaakov on our board. He's both a blessing and a curse. He's the definition in my world of ignorance is bliss. I was happy without knowing all of this, as I'm sure you were too. So he's taught me that nearly 65% of renters in our country are getting a government subsidy, or the housing provider looking after them. Isn't that just enormous? And yet, for us to provide warm, dry, affordable, long-term public housing, market rent actually isn't enough to maintain them and look after them well too with finance. So what, what a mountain we face as a country. We know the waiting list and the scale of that. And if we were to apply, let's say, $700,000 as the cost for each of those new homes, that's the bill we face just to house those households. And we know there is far more than just a public household that need affordable housing. Big numbers for a country of just over 5 million. So that's why our team is excited by finance. Finance gives you today what you can't have, and we need those houses today. Something that makes me feel a little better though is New Zealand has $251 billion of funds under management. So when you first see that sort of $16, $17 billion figure, you, know, you probably feel it there. But look, we have the money already. And so this is about how do we strategically work well with government and the funding that they have been providing? How do we provide the bridge then for the funds we have as a country to not just go into the traditional corporate areas we invested in, but what if they started supporting you as a chip sector? We can all win that way. So finance is usually the big ticket item when you are building or buying a new home. So we normally are seeing 50 to 70%. We know with first home buyers, you've got that fixation on where do I find my 20% deposit? But if we put that in terms of that number before, that means finance, just for this one segment, might need to be around $10 billion. It's a big number. So we've talked a lot in the conference some have talked about the funding, we need the certainty, it needs to be there. We've talked about capital, finance, development. The answer is we actually need all of those working in unison to create more public houses. There are lawyers here, construction companies, say, oh, it's quite good, I can see that much of the people through the lights. Everyone in this room actually represents the sectors we need to do a lot more housing. Just those us here. But to do so, Yes, we need funding, but the funding won't be translated into houses if we don't then raise the finance for CHIPS, if they don't have enough capital, because capital still requires a deposit or equity, you know, loan-to-value ratios, and someone needs to build them well. Now, this gets me excited. I'm obviously a deeply odd human, so I won't, I won't spend too long on this, but this is our bridge. 
and at the top you have foundations, trusts, fund managers. We get really excited at the thought of KiwiSaver, which is now around $90 billion, the everyday savings of us starting to be translated into bonds for, let's say, a Salvation Army, for them down the bottom to build more houses. So we've got the middle bit, and look, it does get dry, even for me. But the thing that's special is when we get to come and be invited to some of the openings of the houses you build, and to see people in tears getting a home they never thought they'd have. And that's what actually this is about. And that's finance that's exciting. And it needs to be, because we do all of this as a social enterprise with a low margin. And that's traditionally a very stupid way to set up a finance company. Uh, it's not the tradition for our country either. And it's not great commercially, but look at what it does if you lower the cost of finance. The funding from government can go further. You can help more people. And that's us collaborating. I can do one-on-ones for those that really want to have an in-depth. I'll save you. So, we work with a range of community housing providers. That's just some of them up on the screen. And we'll be excited to confirm some others that we'll be working with this year ahead. And that's our real privilege. They do amazing things. And to date, we've raised $120 million, mostly from fund managers and KiwiSaver providers to help provide them the finance they need. That's exciting, but it always keeps you humble, doesn't it, when you see that 16 or 17 billion. We need to do more, all of us. So, finance has limitations, though. If the funding is there, and if we can raise the finance, you still need your own deposit, capital, equity. And even the strongest chips have a limitation there. And I think we can't expect the government to provide all the grants there either. We've got a lot of work to do in a lot of areas as a country. So the next thing that we saw by working with the sector was that if we could, through impact investing, provide not just finance, but also capital, to exactly, Natalia's point, what an opportunity then to do more. What if for $1 we could create $10 worth of new housing? And for the kid that didn't like maths, that's what is an adult gets me excited. So that is where positive capital came up. So a little bit, think of a progressive home ownership or shared equity program that a lot in this room have been trailblazers in our country doing that for households. We wanted to do the equivalent for a community housing. So in simple terms, you provide 10% as a deposit. And it's in our job, just too hard, to find the other 90%. And so how that looks is you acquire a half share of the new homes up front, 50%, and we finance 40% of your half share. And then there is a fund we've created, which then for 25 years is sitting there, putting in the other 50% as equity. You repay that debt over that time, you're providing that warm, dry, stable, affordable home for people now, because we need it now. And at the end of year 25, the aspiration is you acquire the half share and then it can continue for the next decades thereafter for affordable housing. It's making money go further, that's the secret to this when the scale of the problem is just so significant. And it's exciting that we had the first impact investor commit $100 million to this new program, which means $200 million of new public housing. So again, that's, that's the beginning of scale but it's still sobering when you look at the total need. Where spreadsheets are exciting, particularly for my wonderful team that look at spreadsheets all day, I think the thing that hopefully resonates for you is the multiplication, as in the people you know that you want to get into a home where this might be part of helping you get there. So on the first column, or the middle one, here's an idea of if you were doing 20 homes and they were costing again, let's say $700,000 each, if you were putting 35% of your own money in, it's about $5 million. You would then borrow $9 million, you would have 20 families in a home. For about the same amount, this allows us to do circa 80. And again, it's all of these layering of how do we wisely work together that I think is really essential for being effective, having value for money, for HUD as well, and for getting these people into a home. Because you live and breathe it every day, just for when I go and see people living in cars and garages, 
we've done a lot, but boy, we've got a lot more to do. So thanks to everyone. Uh, it's an honour to get to serve this sector, and it's exciting to have finance being part of the solution. Thank you. So today I'm going to give you a snapshot, I think is the best way to um, put it, and some reflections on Court's experience of forming a joint venture, um, which was uh, something we undertook to take advantage of or to best use the government funding settings that were available to us, which was the operating supplement. Before I go there, let me tell you a little bit about Court. Um, I think the context is important of who we are and, and how it all came to be. So, Court, a uh, small little acronym for Community of Refuge Trust, which was a small charitable trust that grew out of Onsmey Baptist Church in the um, uh, around 1987. I think a lot of, around the same time, a lot of the NGOs uh, who are represented here probably uh, started. We currently own just over 300 homes across Tamaki Makoto, um, and we lease another sort of um, about 100. We've got a, a smallish team. We're getting a little bit bigger. Uh, we've got 16, and that's a we've got a team of tenancy and property management, a finance team, and a dedicated uh, development team in-house. We have over the years become an experienced developer of new homes, and uh, that was on the back uh, predominantly for a period of time of some capital funding that was available in different ways, uh, and particularly. The, what was called the IRRS 1000 um, RFP, which provided capital funding to build new social or public housing. I make that point in that um, uh, the um, formation of ACORD, I think, in some ways was a direct response to that funding no longer being available and us having to think about how could we best use the operating supplement, which was the new funding settings, knowing that we had limited equity. While Court's been fortunate to build a relatively large asset base, um, equity is still something that is limited, and so we have to find ways um, to bring in external capital. I put this picture here just to remind us that our tenants are what's most important, and every time we get stuck halfway through a big legal document or some due diligence, we remind ourselves of why we're here. So what is a court? Uh, we've taken very much the um, unimaginative Pākehā kind of sense of how, what we call things in North Island, South Island, um, ACC court sticking together, you get a court. Um, a court was formed in about 2020, and it's a joint venture between ACC, um, who you all know, I'm sure, but it's their investment arm, and court community housing. The original parameters of the arrangement was uh, for ACC to provide $50 million of debt, uh, which supported the development of 100 new homes in Auckland. Very much um, a crucial partner to all this, of course, is HUD, providing the operating supplement um, into the JV, which allows the debt to be repaid over that 25-year period that you're all are familiar with. So both the JV has an expiry date around year 25, as does those capacity and service agreements with HUD. ACC and Court are, are, are joint shareholders um, in the structure. There's a general partnership and a limited partnership, and uh, once the assets are created, um, they're basically shared equally by uh, the two partners or the equal shareholders, Court and ACC. I was going to put up a structure diagram, um, but it's incredibly complicated, and I realised I might then have to explain it, so I decided to err on the side of simplicity and not include it here. Importantly, uh, there's a real, there's an ownership stake here for court, and I think that's really important for two reasons. It's important that we have, what, you know, what we refer to as skin in the game. We're absolutely committed to making this work, but more importantly, there's a long-term um, proposition for us to be the, you know, have first right to buy those homes at year 25 and be in a very good position to do so. The structure, so as I said, there's a general partnership and a limited partnership that were formed. Uh, there's four directors, two from ACC and two from Port. Um, the limited partnership, I suppose, is really the, the active vehicle in all of this, and that um, LP undertakes the uh, development of the new homes, signing the, uh, if you like, the simplest way to say that is the limited partnership signs the uh, construction contracts uh, and ultimately owns the assets once they're complete. Those are then leased to court as the chip um, over a 25-year period, and then we sub-lease sub those or rent those to tenants from the public housing register. 
in this structure, and I think um, one of the things that uh, we bring to the table as the chip, and it's not just around the operating supplement, although obviously that's huge, um, but we're also providing the development services, so we're um, managing all of the development process, project management, etc. There's corporate services which are um, part of the, the deal, as it were, in terms of the finance and some of the governing sort of things that are required, and then importantly, over time, we're doing the tenancy and property management. And so. Um, I guess you'll appreciate there's levels of legal framework that sits behind each of those um, that, that was created as the structure was born. Getting into the slightly more exciting part, what are the homes? Well, we've now got a pipeline of 104 that's flexed up a little bit as these projects have come sort of to fruition, over seven developments in Auckland. One of those is complete and we were really fortunate um, to open uh, 15 homes in Massey last year. We've got six under construction and the final project is sort of in those final stages of consenting. 75% of one bedrooms, 25% two. They're all median density, which is where court has some experience and I think it's certainly um, what works in terms of our model of uh, public housing. The smallest development is eight units and the largest is 23. And really most importantly, why do we do this? Well, it's so that we can continue to do our work for uh, people in our community who are um, at the hard edge and most vulnerable and I think for some of you who heard the work that we're doing um, with a pilot with Mahitahi and to Tukutumai in terms of really focusing on how can we make the most impact in our community and that's all of this feeds through into that which is an incredibly important part to remember. This is some court housing that has already been completed and isn't part of this joint venture uh, but I just wanted to give you a sense of what are we actually talking about? We talk about homes sometimes in a very kind of um, theoretical sense and it's nice to see what they actually look like. And there's a couple of renders um, of the current pipeline that we're looking through at the moment. Um, it'd be wonderful to come back and share some photos and some experience of the actual homes once they're finished in the next few years. What are our reflections of this process? Uh, there's a lot to be honest and there's a lot of learning. We're still doing it. Um, while the joint venture exists and funding has, has started, the building is working, we're still learning, we're still figuring this out to some degree. It has been an effective model for us where equity was limited. Um, and obviously capital, our own capital was limited and mainstream banking has obviously, as you know, some covenants that allow you only to borrow so much at any given time. It was really important for us to upskill in terms of our understanding of the long-term implications of a deal like this. I think um, Court had started down that journey, but we hadn't necessarily put a lot of thought into what happens at year 25. What are the implications for us? Not just in year 25, but if we do this deal for 25 years, how many more of these deals could we do and what would that mean? There's considerable resourcing required, and I think it's really important for us to be honest about that. That was both internally about the amount of time that was taken, but investments from both court and ACC into the, um, the legal costs um, and all of the other consultants. The structural and legal framework is complicated, uh, and we're still working through that to some degree in terms of how the money flows, what are the bank accounts, how does that all work? We're getting there, uh, and I think. As, as it all settles down, it becomes quite an easy thing to operate. But again, um, I think honesty in that space is important in terms of how complicated these things can be. I think for these reasons, all of those relationships with those consultant partners is incredibly um, important. We've got a huge level of trust in the uh, capability um, of our own legal kind of team, but we've also, it was crucial during that process to bring in people that our board and court um, as an organisation trusted and can give us some really good advice and basically advise on that due diligence process. Our board was crucial in this whole process. They obviously went on a journey um, through this process as well and I think their willingness to learn, their willingness to engage in concepts to some degree that we hadn't really tackled before was crucial into keeping this thing going. So I think um, if there's a message there it's about taking your board on the journey as early as possible. The due diligence process um, is no doubt daunting to some degree, but I would also view it as ultimately a very supportive thing for your organisation to go through. You learn a hell of a lot about yourselves when you're asked some really tough questions that you know someone's going to be interested in the answers of. How do you do tenancy management? What are your long-term asset plans? How do you ensure um, all of those important uh, metrics are met? How do you ensure quality in the long term? So I think we've viewed those as um, another important building block for court. No matter what comes next for us, it's been an excellent process. Ideally as well, we're creating this structure where it can be added to in the future. So that investment in time um, and our, I guess, um, 
all of the work that goes into it ideally doesn't have to be repeated too many times for more capital to flow. After all of that, the biggest reflection of course is that we're building 104 new homes and without all of that work we wouldn't have been able to do that and so I think that's again, we don't lose sight of the fact um, that that's at the end of all of this hard money. I think that's probably the most important point to leave you on. Uh, that's really a snapshot, I think, um, from Port's perspective. Um, as ever, we're very keen to pass on anything we've learned, have those conversations. So, hey, do come and find me if you've, if you've got questions about that um, or um, any other thoughts about how it might feel for you as a, as a chip. I think flowing on from that, uh, the next step for us is to introduce Judith, who's going to give a bit more of a legal kind of perspective and to talk about some of the structure, the pros and cons, and how it might um, work. Different chip settings. Well, kia ora tato. Um, as Stephen mentioned, my name is Judith and I'm a partner at Perryfield Lawyers. Um, we are a law firm based here in Christchurch. It's an honour um, to be part of this conference and part of this sector. Uh, my interest in this space started as my first, uh, one of my first governance roles was as a trustee of a small charitable trust here in Christchurch um, that developed 11 social housing units um, and then was able to house um, whānau in those. Seeing firsthand um, the huge impact that having a home had on these people really gave me a passion for this area. So um, yeah, I and others in our firm really feel very passionate about the community housing sector. So today I'm going to talk to you about legal structures. Um, your eyes might have glazed over a little bit when Stephen was talking about limited partnerships, general partnerships, all those sorts of things. Today I'm not going to go into too much detail, I'm going to try and keep it quite high level, but be assured those things excite lawyers. So um, if you are getting on the journey of um, starting to provide community housing, um, do talk with your, with your lawyers to get the right structure in place. So, which vehicle or which structure? What we're going to do today is Adelaide shortly is um, going to run you through sort of the life cycle of a project. But one of the first things that uh, a lawyer might get asked is, which entity should I set up to provide some community housing? To start with, we'll ask you about your purpose. What are you trying to achieve and how will you achieve this? Just like you wouldn't um, pack 10 people into that little smart car to do a road trip across um, the back country of Australia, um, and you probably wouldn't use the biggest car ever built, longest car ever built, to do your um, chores around Christchurch City. You want to make sure that your vehicle for providing the community housing is appropriate and will achieve your purpose. So some of the questions that we might ask you when you come in um, and say, we want to provide some community housing. We're going to ask you, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be acquiring the land? Are you going to be doing the development? and then um, tenanting out the, the premises? Or are you going to be um, simply leasing the uh, properties from someone else who has developed them uh, and doing the tenanting? It's really important to know what your role is uh, in the project. What's the size and complexity of the project? Are you building and renting three units? Or are you doing um, like what Court did and providing 104 homes? How will you pay for the project? So obviously we've talked a lot today about um, funding and finance um, and it's really important to have um, an understanding right at the start how this project will be um, paid for um, or some ideas of the different options. Funders and financiers will have different requirements um, in terms of what they want to see about the structure that you have in place and making sure that that is fit for purpose. Who will be involved? Will it just be your organisation involved or will you be joining forces with other organisations um, like we've heard Stephen talk about today? In terms of your particular organisation, who will be involved? It's important for both funders and financiers and yourself, your own organisation, to make sure that both the governance structure and the management structure um, is well suited to the type of project. If you're wanting to embark on a project um, that's going to be building 104 homes, and there's no one in your governance structure and no one in your management structure that has any experience in a large-scale project like this, haven't done any construction, haven't provided any community housing before, you probably need to ask some questions and the funders and financiers will ask some questions as well. It's really important to have the right people in your structures with the right experience. So now I'm just going to give a high-level overview of just a couple of different structures that you might like to use. There are many different structures that can be used 
um, but these will give you some ideas. First one is limited partnerships. Um, so this is a corporate structure. It combines some key features from companies uh, and some key features from partnerships. So you have one entity as the general partner um, and they manage sort of the day-to-day -day running of the entity. <coughs> and then you have your limited partners who are your investors uh, and almost silent partners there. The positives um, of a limited partnership, well, liability for those limited partners, those investors, is ring-fenced. Uh, it's restricted to their contributed capital. So that's a bit of security for them. Uh, the, the general partner uh, can manage the affairs of the limited partnership, so they've still got quite a bit of control about what, what goes on there. Um, there's also privacy, the identity of the limited partners uh, and the contents of your partnership agreement, they're not registered anywhere. Um, so for some people and organisations, that's important. The drawbacks, it is more involved to set it up. Um, you do need a written partnership agreement. Um, and obviously the investors or the, the limited partners, they can sort of negotiate their uh, rights and obligations in this, this deal. So um, you do need to be careful that uh, you agree on that before moving in. Um, and there might be other um, FMCA requirements that you need to meet there as well, which again adds a layer of complexity. General partnerships, this is where two or more partners or organisations join, force, join forces. The liability is not ring-fenced, so those entities are uh, jointly liable there. You could have a partnership agreement or a joint venture agreement, and we would always um, advise that yes, you should have one of those, um, but it is not uh, a requirement. Uh, again, these are private and aren't registered. And then the last one I want to talk to you about there are uh, charitable trusts, um, which lots of you will be familiar with. So these are a separate legal entity. Um, if your trust board is incorporated, um, it will be the entity that uh, contracts. The liability of the trustees is limited if that trust is incorporated and that's really important if you're getting volunteers onto your board um, that will make them feel more comfortable um, about coming and becoming involved. When a charitable trust is registered there's quite a lot um, of detail about the trust available for public searching so that's something to be aware of uh, and also because you're registered the Attorney General can also inquire into and examine the operation and condition of the charity. So someone can be coming in and looking at that. With the charity, your purposes are restrictive. Um, so you must act to further uh, the purposes that are in your trustee, and those purposes must be charitable. So advancement of education, religion, relief of poverty, or any other purpose um, for the benefit of the community that's not in those three. It's important to set those up right at the start because if you set up your charitable trustee and you originally wanted to um, advance education but now you're going to do community housing, that's not quite fitting. So um, we need to make sure that that structure is right. Tax exemption, um, if you are registered with charity services, um, your charity should be exempt from income tax uh, on some or all of its income. There might be some other tax benefits there as well. Uh, and your entity might be eligible for donee organisation status, uh, which allows donors to claim a tax credit um, when they donate to the charity. There are quite onerous disclosure and reporting requirements for charities, um, and especially the larger the charity is. But whilst that might seem onerous, um, being a registered charity does give your entity um, greater credibility. So that's just a bit of an overview of some structures. As we've heard today, there's obviously a lot of complexity um, the larger scale you go, and there could be lots of different structures that might be that might need to be involved in um, what you end up doing. So you have an idea, you want to um, provide some more community housing, where to next? Well, what we would suggest is uh, chatting to your advisors early on. Adelaide's shortly going to give some more advice on uh, the whole, uh, all the steps of the project. Um, and she also would encourage you to talk to your advisors early on. Also, I've got the meet up with others in the sector. As Stephen mentioned, he's happy to um, chat with you about his experience, but we're always pleasantly surprised in the sector how willing uh, organisations who have they're further along on the journey, how willing they are to um, assist people. And in your welcome packs, you should have received um, a legal guide that we prepared for this conference. We're always very keen to provide any resources um, that might be useful to the sector. So please just let us know if there's an area that you would like us to provide a free article on or something like that. I'm just going to leave you with a quote from Maya Angelou that says, The ache for home lives in all of us. 
the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. How wonderful if every whānau in Aotearoa could satisfy this ache and have a place to call their home. I was silly enough to learn today that you don't send a PDF to a conference because it is tricky with the slides, so we have no slides now. But no, work the words, always send by PowerPoint. Kia ora koutou, Paul Adelaide Brown, tōku ingoa, himihinui, himihimahana, ke um, So I'm Adelaide, I'm a manager in the KPMG Deals Advisory Team in Wellington, um, where I focus primarily on government and infrastructure advisory services. Um, I resonated with something James said, which was that when I was a child I didn't dream of numbers. Um, when I was a child I wanted to help. I had the privilege of living in Malaysia for a couple of years and um, saw firsthand poverty side by side with wealth and privilege. And at that stage I was in a position of privilege and so that has carried me through in my career. And it's always been quite stark coming to New Zealand, my home, um, and seeing that's so prevalent the issue here. So I started my career in the Community Housing Regulatory Authority and have since moved to KPMG. Um, so I think there's a real role for the sector and I just wanted to acknowledge everyone in this room and the people that have been on this stage before me and the mana that we have collected here today. Um, so thank you. So off the back of off the back of Judith's presentation on legal structures um, and some of the due diligence you want to consider. I'm going to take you through a more commercial perspective um, and for my part I'm going to talk to you about three key things. Um, so firstly, I want to summarise the difference between funding and finance. We've used those two terms today but I think it's important to distinguish those. Um, and then second I'm going to provide an overview of how a deal may come together in the housing context. Um, and then finally I'm going to close with some considerations from a financier's perspective and some of these may cross over with what Judith was talking about before but um, useful to set those out. Um, at the end of my session you'll hopefully come away with an understanding of the role of finance, the sense of the process and how potentially make it easier and then the importance of right-sizing the deal to the opportunity. So let's jump in by defining some key terms that are sometimes used interchangeably. So funding refers to how the project is ultimately going to be um, paid for over the cost of its life. So in other words, it's the revenue sources um, where there's usually no expectation of those being repaid. Finance, on the other hand, refers to how the capital requirements are going to be met um, when the timing of project costs don't align to the funding that's available for the project. So financing costs will usually be met by the funding sources of the project. In fact, they will be met by the funding sources of the project. Um, and they usually come with the expectation of repayment or a return on the investment. The final concept is the commercial delivery model. And I don't have it on the slide, but I'd quite like to just talk about it. And that's the set of relationships, obligations, risk allocation, and financial flows between the different entities involved in a deal that will underpin the relationship and how you will um, deliver your housing project. So looking back at funding, at face value there's an inherent appeal to utilising your fu internal funding sources rather than seeking external finance. Um, however, as you'll know, it simply isn't possible for many organisations in the community housing sector who don't have significant capital reserves based on the operating model where we're not here to make a profit, we're here to build people's lives and build houses that enable them to have a home. So the other thing on the fun funding side is that while government support, there is government support under the current settings that predominantly comes in the form of rent income and that's through time through your IRRS or operating supplement contracts. And so both of these will help you meet the cost of debt over time. They don't often provide upfront funding for development costs. And there are some instances where they do, you know, we do hear of operating supplement being capitalised upfront in the regions, but it's not the rule. Finance, therefore, is your solution um, to manage that mismatch in timing. So when we think about sources of finance, I think it's also useful to just touch on this. Um, the traditional source of finance is banks, and I think it was displayed at the start that when we think about how much money is funding housing projects, banks are the 
predominant funder. It's about 700 million from memory. Um, so banks do provide traditional property financing, um, and they're the most well known. The challenge for the social housing sector is that those normal lending considerations that would occur in a, we'll call it like a vanilla market housing deal, um, don't often apply as well in the community housing context. And you may have experienced this in your time when talking to banks, um, because in usual circumstances, a bank is going to mitigate their risk by having the ability to exercise security. That is to say, if the money they've given you isn't being repaid, um, they could take that property back and take that as security. Um, however, in the social public housing context, um, banks are rightly less willing because the result of that means vulnerable people lose their homes. So the effect of this is that rather than um, a bank being primarily interested in a project's LVR, so the loan to value ratio, it's essentially kind of um, how much money can the project achieve, um, what will its value be, they're going to be focused on the cash flows, so how much money and what are the cash flows of the project over time, over its life. Um, and this means you essentially need to find a bank who's comfortable with the sector um, and willing to be flexible in terms of the lending structure, who might be more interested in lending based on cash flows as opposed to the project's LVR. Um, where am I? Um, so that's where structured um, cash flow financing comes in. That's probably the example that I'll talk to most today. Um, a point to note is that there is still a bit of a gap in the market in terms of being able to achieve a structured cash flow financing deal. Um, usually they occur in, for projects around 50 million or more. But I guess that's where someone like James at Community Finance becomes so interesting because they're starting to meet that gap. Um, but it's also where partnering can become useful because one organisation can, can achieve so much, but by partnering and leveraging, you're able to achieve a better deal. So now I'm going to talk about how a deal might come together. And at the outset, I just want to say that there's many permeations of this, you know, um, depending on where you're at, the assets that you have, the conversations that you've already had, you may be at different steps, steps in the process, um, or it may occur differently to you, but this is one way of describing it. Um, and we'll whiz through it so we have time to go through the considerations of financiers at the end. Um, at the outset and at the start, your first step is to identify, define the opportunity. Um, once you know this, you become in a much better position to um, quantify the financial needs of the project um, and then also to identify what the necessary skills, resources are to deliver on that project. Um, so that's essentially setting out the context of the opportunity and everything that's required to achieve it. And once you know this, you can cross-check that and examine it against what capability is held internally and where you might need to bring in external advice. Um, it's probably also at this stage that we'd advise engaging with HUD um, so that you can ensure broad support for the direction of travel. I know there's some difficulties in terms of um, the point at which you're able to get a contract. I've got a nod down here. Um, so early communication is always what's going to support you best in these things. Um, and from this point, we're now, we're now at the shopping trolley. Um, so at this point, if you think they're required, you can bring on board your specialist support to help develop the proposal in more detail. Um, in addition to property credentials, I think it's fair to say a lot of chips don't maintain in-house property capability. Um, if you're not developing at scale regularly, it's hard to retain those skills. Um, so often we'll see property skills being brought in. Um, but additional advisors can help you um, in developing your options for the commercial model. Um, and just linking back, that commercial model is thinking about the roles, the obligations, the risk allocation and the financial flows of the parties that are going to be involved. At this point, um, you're then in a position to approach the market with a clear understanding of your needs and to be able to find a finance partner that's going to align um, with your objectives. I think the process can be somewhat chicken and egg. You're trying to source a long-term contract and attract finance simultaneously. Um, and while it's linear, you know, there's obviously interdependencies and different permeations, but 
Um, the point I made earlier about engaging early will help. Um, talking with the bank early, um, whilst this is also about alternative finance, there's definitely a role for banks. And I think if you're able to build that relationship early, even potentially outside of the deal process, it will help you. I've seen research um, where a public, uh, sorry, a progressive homeownership product um, wasn't successful in trial stage because there are other factors, but they hadn't engaged with the bank, they weren't known, they didn't have established credibility, they didn't have that relationship. And so when they were trying to talk about something new, that it ultimately fell down. So I can't encourage enough just building those relationships early. Considerations for a financier. So, playing back, we've talked about the need for finance and what stage of the process you um, go to a financier. Um, to smooth the path, it's going to help to be aware of your financier's requirements um, early and understand when you need to engage with them, but then also think about um, how are they going to look at the opportunity that you're presenting them because it's ultimately an opportunity combined with risk. Um, so this slide sets out how they'll consider that risk and opportunity um, for the deal presenting. We'll start at the left and we'll work our way across. Um, so size, uh, size of the project. They're going to consider this relative to your current operations um, or to the size of your counterparties as well. Um, for example, are you a full house provider looking to embark on a 200 property project? It's not often, often the resources wouldn't exist, but it can happen. Um, and so this is really about are you sizing the opportunity correctly to your organisation? Um, in terms of experience, they'll want to look at who the counterparties to the deal are. Um, have you completed projects like this before? Do you have the scale and the systems to manage the risk? Um, and again, if you're a smaller provider or if this is a new project, have you partnered with a pre-existing organisation? which is usually a really good way. I think um, the example of the wine market inlet is a really um, cool example of partnership in the chip sector. Um, so with the focus on experience, it's really the financiers understanding who they would be entering into a deal with. From a risk perspective, um, and this is like something that yourselves as chip would need to be thinking about, it's, it's about do the proposed deal structure and the risk sharing arrangements present a low risk to being repaid. Um, it's are the modelled returns or yield um, that meeting your needs and aligning to the climate of the investment funds? Are your objectives in alignment? Um, is there a risk allocation um, aligned? Is the proposed risk allocation aligned to their preferred risk allocation? LVR is something that um, a bank and as a normal financier is going to consider and, and that's in the context of the surplus cash flows um, that you have available after debt servicing um, and in this context they're wanting to stress test your ability to make repayments under different scenarios. Um, the last bit is just complexity. Um, they'll want to manage any degree of complexity that's proposed under the deal structure to the size of the deal. Usually the more complex the deal structure, the bigger size of the deal the financiers will be looking for. Um, so that's something to bear in mind as you go through the process um, with your advisors on what the legal structure is and how much complexity you build in. Um, you want to right size that to the opportunity and the return that you need and the return that you're willing for the financiers to make. On this next slide, um, hopefully it's easy to read. Um, I've set out some of the characteristics and investment profiles of the different um, types of investors. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these today because I'm really keen that everyone has the opportunity to ask questions. Um, this is a recorded session so it will be available for your reference data. Um, but I think the thing to call out is the, the different time frames that the types of investors are likely to want to be involved in a different project. Um, your developers are much more likely to be short-termist, whereas an infrastructure investor, um, the likes of ACC or AMP, um, they're more likely to um, look for a long-term stable cash flow, which is something that the community housing sector can present. So if I was to summarise, um, the role of finance in public housing is to meet the timing gap 
between rent revenue received uh, through time and the upfront costs of development. Pulling a deal together can be non-linear, but is supported by building your relationships with financiers early. And financiers are focused on weighing up the risk and opportunity relative to the size of the deal. Therefore, it's important to right-size the deal properly. I hope this session has provided you with a clear understanding of the role of finance, um, the formation process and the importance of right-sizing. Um, I'll pass it back now to Stephen for taking questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've tried to cover a whole lot of ground today around finance and um, we've really only scratched the surface of course, uh, so I hope it was a helpful introduction. Uh, I'm not the best timekeeper in the world, but I think we've got about 10 minutes of questions. Um, but I think before we do that, uh, it'd just be nice to give one more round of applause to everyone who's come and shared their time. <laughs> Well, I do hope you enjoyed that workshop. For me, there was a bunch of highlights, and I really enjoyed hearing about finance, structure, different options, and some great questions from the crowd at the end. Until next time. Mm -hmm.